Thanks, Jenny. Great praises. Okay, I kind of moved us over a little bit. We're all uh, inching this way. I'm hoping that by April we're not all the way on the other side of the um, stage here. But we were talking over there, and y'all were moving over this way. So I'm going to kind of shift us over a little bit this morning. Welcome back to Women in the Word. You know, last week was, uh, if you were here, you were the ones that persevered and came through the storm, weren't you? I laughed because you know who came. Our small group leaders were faithful uh, to come. And then the majority of you, I think there were about 70 of us here, the majority of you were wise and um, stayed home and whatever, but, um, you know, just didn't get out and drive and and, uh, that sort of thing, which we appreciated. We didn't want anyone... We think the Word of God is valuable, but we didn't want anyone risking their life. Um, but do you know who came? And this was, it was such a statement. It was every mother that had a toddler. That's who came. <laughs> I mean, there were babies in the nursery, and half of them were pregnant, bringing a two-year-old in, you know, thinking, I am not stuck in a snowstorm at home with a toddler. I am coming to Bible study. So... And I say amen to that. If you've got some place for your two-year-old to be uh, for a while, enjoy that and appreciate that. I'm Shelley Davis, and I'm delighted to be here with you this morning as part of the teaching team as we continue our series, You've Got Mail. If you missed last week because of the blizzard, I want everyone to know that we made many extra copies of Deb Haygood's excellent lecture on our final lesson in 1 Thessalonians. She encouraged us out of those last few verses about what Paul says about living our life Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And you can get those as you leave this morning out at the information desk. So please do that. You know, in June, I, I think it was 2002, my youngest son graduated from high school. And just it wasn't but a week or so later that um, we took him to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs to begin his first year there and to start his basic training. Now, I had already taken two kids to college by that time in my life. So I knew the drill. You pack up all the cars to the brim and then you go to college and with, to the college. And now with boys, when you take them to college, you spend two days there hooking up their electronics. That's all you really do. You get their computer and their TV and their video games and that's all they could care less. They don't even really need sheets because they don't... um, One of mine seriously slept on the floor for the entire first year because he didn't want to make his bed. So uh, anyway, but I understand with girls when you take them to college that you decorate. I don't know this for a a truth, but you do the comforters and rugs on the floors and you can paint the walls now in most of the dorms, you know, that sort of thing. But when I took my youngest to the Air Force Academy, it it was a different deal. It was actually really very simple. Because all we had to do was take him to a predetermined spot on the academy grounds and leave him with nothing but the clothes on his back. And that was the um, easy part. The hard part was we weren't going to be able to talk to him for um, several weeks. And because we are, um, the only thing we would be able to do is to communicate with him through the mail. And because we're talking about mail, our series is You've Got Mail, and we've just finished Paul's first Thessalonian, first letter to the Thessalonians. I brought you, Rob or Ellen, if we could put it on the screen. This is the first letter. 
that we received from him from the Air Force Academy. It is a form letter, and I waited by the mailbox for it desperately. As you can see, he filled in um, mom and dad in the blank. I was proud that he remembered who we were. And then his address. But what cracked me up the most is at the bottom, he signed his full name, Brett Davis. <laughs> Like, like we were not going to remember um, who he was after that short period of time. Okay, you can, you can turn it off now, Ellen. But um, actually, you know, the Air Force is pretty insightful. They know, they know that all parents that go through this are desperate to hear from their son or daughter after they drop them off. But they don't want to give the new recruit any opportunity to say, this is terrible, come get me, I don't want to do this anymore. So they are all required. This is the only thing they can send out at first is this form letter where they simply fill in their names. I don't know whether you read it or not, but it says, I'm doing well. And so (laughs) typed in, and I asked him later, and he said, oh, yeah, we were ordered to sign it. There There was no chance not to sign this letter. So the Air Force really killed two birds with one stone. I got a letter and he didn't get a chance to complain. So fortunately for us here today, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians are not form letters. They are uh, way more informative. They're also so personal and so heartfelt. You can tell from reading Paul's letters how much he loves the Thessalonians. And I do want to share with you that fortunately for me, as a mom, a few days later, I did get a personal, informative, handwritten letter from my son. And I could tell that he wrote that letter, that first letter that he handwrote, with two purposes in mind. One is he wanted to refute the era of this form letter that things were going well. He wanted us to know that it was way harder than he had ever anticipated. But I also could tell he had another purpose in mind. He really wanted to encourage us. He knew that this was hard for us too. And so he wrote a lot of really encouraging things in that letter to his dad and I, which we appreciated. Paul writes his letter, his second letter to the Thessalonians, to the young church at Thessalonica with purpose also. He doesn't do it randomly because he doesn't have anything else to do. He does it with great purpose. Months after sending his first letter to the Thessalonians, the one that we just finished looking at for the last few weeks with Lynn and with Deb, Paul begins to receive reports back about what's going on with the Thessalonians and the new church at Thessalonica. He probably gets those reports back from whoever carried the letter, which most people think it was Silas and Timothy or perhaps one or the other of them carried the letter. And that when they came back, they gave reports um, to Paul about what was happening at Thessalonica. They told him that not only were the persecutions continuing for the Thessalonians, but that life was pretty hard for them. And that in the midst of that hardship, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of that hardship and persecution, they were struggling with their faith. As their persecutions had increased, Paul learned that there were false doctrines that were circling around the church, that um, there were lies that were being told about what the future held for the Thessalonians. So, excuse me, so a year after sending his first letter, anywhere from six months to a year, after sending his first letter, Paul realizes that his work with the Thessalonians isn't done. And he once more sits down with his pen in hand 
to instruct them in the truth. And we're going to see today, as we look at these opening paragraphs in 2 Thessalonians, if you haven't turned there yet, open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to see that he knows what his job is. He knows that his job is not only to refute any errors that may have begun to take root in the church as a result of the stress that they were under, but he knows that his job is also to refute those errors in a way that encourages them to persevere in their struggles, to not give up. I heard some great definitions in the small group leaders this meeting this morning about what it means, your personal definition of what it means to persevere. Paul had his personal definition of what it meant to persevere in mind when he wrote this letter. His job as an apostle, as a gospel spreader, as a truth teacher, is to bring them to maturity, not by sugarcoating the truth, or not by ignoring the fact that, you know, life is hard, so if you make a few mistakes, it doesn't really matter. But Paul's job he knew was to bring them to maturity by speaking the truth in love in such a manner that it pushed them on down the road to um, a greater faith in life. So Paul begins his second letter to his friends. He doesn't do it with a bat to beat them up for falling prey to the lies and the false doctrine that he's heard is going around the church now. But he begins by encouraging them in such a way that they can't help but catch his persevering spirit. These are Paul's own words in Ephesians. I love these words in Ephesians because uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 on your verse sheet, these are Paul's own words because he's talking about false teachers and maturity and the truth. Ephesians 4.15, this is what Paul says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. Paul knows that truth and love go together when you're encouraging someone to not fall prey to the lies that are out in the world, but to encourage them to continue their walk in the faith. And this morning, as we open up our Bibles to chapter 1, what I really want us to do is to learn from Paul's wisdom here concerning the fact that truth and love do go together when we encourage someone to persevere in the faith and to take that to heart in our own lives because each of us in this room, I know, has other believers that we're walking along beside who have some issue in their life, whether they're suffering, whether they need uh, simply to listen to the truth and not the lies and continue on. But we're going to be in their lives to encourage them to persevere. So let's look at um, 2 Thessalonians, verses uh, 1 through 4. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. You know, Paul begins this letter the same way he began his first letter, by identifying himself and his companions. And in fact, verses 1 and 2 are almost identical to verse 1 in 1 Thessalonians. You looked at that in your um, homework. 
And right here in this letter, we see that Paul has begun in his greeting to provide the encouragement that he's going to be giving out to his persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 1, he gives them the exact same benediction of grace and peace. But now, in light of what Paul knows about the Thessalonians from Timothy and Silas, if they return, in light of the fact that he knows that there's some false doctrines going around, that they may be struggling just a little bit to decide what's really true in their new faith, he gives them a solid rock, an anchor to hold on to as he encourages them with the source of their blessing. He wants them to know without a doubt that although the words grace and peace are flowing from his pen, he's writing them out on the paper, that the grace and peace he wants from them truly come only from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I started studying this months ago, this jumped out at me uh, real quickly for some reason. I was struck by the fact that Paul gives us, this is such a simple but really solid application in our lives as we uh, walk alongside others right here in his greeting. You know, as women in the world and women in the church, all of us are going to be faced with other believers in our lives who are being tripped up in their faith by false lies or false doctrines or maybe just by the suffering that they're personally experiencing. It may be a coworker or a neighbor, somebody that you know as a believer that um, you've seen them go to church every Sunday morning, you've heard them talk about their faith, but all of a sudden they begin to watch a tele-evangelist or a self-help guru on TV and you begin to hear them say things that you think, what? That's not what my Bible says here. Or maybe it's your child that comes home from college. I've heard this recently. Um, a believing child that comes home from college and, oh my gosh, they're so excited. The class on Eastern meditation they have been taking for their uh, global studies major has really impacted them. And now they're humming and meditating to, um, and facing East. Or um, maybe it's a mentee someone that you've invested in and all of a sudden life is hard for your this other woman you're walking along beside and you see her because of the lies the world is offering her. She stops living out her faith. Regardless of who it is in our lives, ladies, um, we are going to be faced with those relationships. Believers that we know have begun to say things that maybe are not exactly true. And I think that all of you would probably agree with me that when we're faced with that, it seems hard. Sometimes we don't know where to begin to point them back onto the right track. Well, I think Paul does it pretty simply right here by starting with the truth of who is the source of all of our blessings. It is true that our source is God the Father and Jesus Christ is Lord over the church and believers. And simply reminding those that we're walking along beside in the faith who is the source of our blessings as believers, is the right first step towards encouraging others to persevere in the truth. Paul knows it may not be easy to encourage others that are struggling in their faith, but I think Paul knows it's really pretty simple. Um, Everything begins with God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians, we read this. In Colossians 1, 16 through 18, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And, of course, Paul's talking about um, Christ right there. Paul's example is really simple, but it's pretty solid. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is a great place to start when we are trying to encourage someone in their suffering to persevere in the faith. Paul's next encouragement from these verses is also really simple. In verses 3 and 4, he encourages the persecuted Thessalonians through his thanksgiving as he thanks God for what he sees in their life. Now, if you think back, we did this in our homework, if you think back to uh, his first letter to the Thessalonians, you will remember that Paul had a huge desire for the Thessalonians to continue to grow in love for their brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that as they did so, that would allow them to mature, and their faith and their faithfulness would grow. This is what he said in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, he says this. And in fact, you do love all the brothers through Macedonia, yet we urge you, brother, to do so more and more. His first letter, we see his desire for this to happen in their lives. And in his second letter, we see him giving thanks for the fact that he can see that in their lives. He's commending them for it. And he really gives thanks for two things here. The first one is that their love is increasing, which is evidence in his mind that their faith is growing, which is what his huge desire is for them. Paul knows um, that faith is the root, but love is actually the fruit of spiritual growth. Faith is the root, but love is the fruit of spiritual growth. And he knows, um, and he thanks God for that. He knows that if that has happened in their life, it is a result of God's power and God's work. And he gives God the glory for that. The second thing we see him give thanks for is in verse 4. where We see him giving thanks for their perseverance in the faith in spite of their persecutions. You know, Paul is delighted delighted that their spiritual growth has not come in the midst of easy times, but their spiritual growth has come in the midst of some really difficult trials. He considers that remarkable. In fact, he's so excited about it, the strides that they've made in the midst of trials, that he's not only thanking God for it, he's running around boasting about it to all the other churches. He's telling everyone else, you will not Uh, believe what's happened with the Thessalonians. They are being persecuted and they are growing in spite of it. The wording that he uses here in verse 3, we ought always to thank God for you, actually implies in the original language that he felt obligated to give thanks for them as if he owed a debt which he paid enthusiastically. Now, I don't know whether any of you in here have debts, whether you have a car loan or a mortgage or maybe even a credit card debt. Um, I can remember enthusiastically writing the last check on the car loan of the car that I'd bought after I graduated from college. I mean, I could hardly wait to send the um, bank that money for that uh, very last payment for my car. Um, And that's Paul's thought here. Giving thanks for their spiritual growth is a debt that he enthusiastically pays. 
And don't forget that as Paul writes this and is so enthusiastic in his thanksgiving, uh, he already knows what's going on with the Thessalonians. He's been told of their shortcomings. He's been told that they're circulating lies and false doctrine in the church. He's well aware of their faults and their difficulties as he gives thanks for them because that's the reason he's actually started this letter in the first place. But instead of criticizing them here, he commends them. And he gives thanks for what's been accomplished in their life, not criticizes for what's not going right in their life. I love this about Paul because what he sees with the Thessalonians is that the glass is half full, not half empty. And this is a great example. It was a great example to me as I walk along beside um, other believers in my life, uh, people that may not be getting it entirely right or may be stumbling along as they struggle to persevere in their relationship with God. It's a great example because I think, first of all, we should not forget to thank God for what he's already done in their life. If you have a mentee or a child or someone that you're um, trying to push along the path of faith, don't forget to thank God for what he's already done in their life because if they're believers, even if they're struggling, God has already accomplished the work of salvation and justification in their life, and you can thank God for that. Romans 8.30 on your verse sheet says this, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow. Now, wait a minute. I'm reading the wrong verse. 8.30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God has already accomplished that work in their life, no matter where they are right now. And you can give thanks for that. We can also thank our God as we walk along beside others that may be struggling a little bit and we're trying to encourage them to persevere, that he is the author and perfecter of their faith. You know, it's not us. Um, You may be walking along beside them, but you're not the one that um, started their faith. You're not the one that is actually going to carry it out. That's not our job, and we can thank God for that. Hebrews 2.12 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And finally, when we walk along beside others, we can thank God for what he's able to do in their life, for the fact that he has such great power, and there's nothing that he's not going to be able to accomplish in their life, no matter what they're enduring, no matter what lies they're choosing to embrace right now. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, than all we ask or imagine according to his great power that is at work within us. We can thank God for the great power that's available to work in those we walk along beside. You know, walking along beside those who are suffering or struggling can be a test of our faith also. But following Paul's example of thanksgiving does a great thing in our life. It reminds us of what our job is in their life, which is to walk along beside them and to encourage them and what God's job is. And sometimes we get those two mixed up. So remember to give thanks when you're walking along beside someone um, because we are only the encourager and messenger of the truth. And we should have grateful hearts in order to keep that in perspective. And our thanksgiving will give God the glory only he deserves. 1 Corinthians 1557 says, Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory.
through our Lord Jesus Christ. He deserves the glory, not us. Okay, let's read verses um, 5 through 10. Continue on with Paul's encouragement. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. If you know me very well, my family will testify to this, that one of my favorite phrases, things to say, is in the midst of life trials is, this too shall pass. Um, I like it because saying this too shall pass when um, I'm missing an airplane or have a flat tire or whatever it is helps me to lift my eyes up from where I am right now and gets me focused on the future. Hope for the future truly has the ability to spur us all on in all situations, whether it's simply knowing that the daffodils that I'm just beginning to see pop up all over town uh, give us hope that spring really is on the way, or whether it's planning a vacation right now that we're going to take in the middle of July, and that kind of gets us through the rest of our uh, winter weather here and thinking about what's going to happen. Or maybe just as simple as thinking, you know what, tomorrow's Friday, and that means the weekend is here, and this crazy week is behind me. In these verses, verses 5 through 10, Paul lets it be known that there is a time coming in the future that the Thessalonians can look forward to, no matter what they're going through right now. A time when Jesus will return to the earth. A time when rewards are going to be meted out and punishments are going to be made. When we studied Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians a few weeks ago, um, we also looked at Paul's teaching on future things with Deb Hagen in chapters and um, chapters 5. She looks specifically with you at the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord, which begins immediately after the rapture of the church and continues uh, until the conclusion of Christ's literal 1,000-year reign on the earth. Now, the first time that Christ comes following the resurrection is going to be for the church, which is what we talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, He's not going to actually, he's going to meet us in the air. Uh, the second time he comes is at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, and it's going to be with the church, with the believers. So the first time he comes for the church, the second time he comes with the church to begin his thousand-year reign. And that's what Paul's talking about in these few verses right here, the time when Christ returns with his church to begin his thousand-year reign. If you look on the back of your verse sheet, I included a little chart there. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that today because actually we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it next week. That's going to be next week's lesson. But sometimes we kind of get confused when we talk about this, so I've given it to you so you can compare a little bit the difference between what he says in 1 Thess 4 and 2 Thess 1. What I want us to focus on today is how Paul 
encourages the Thessalonians to endure the present by looking towards the future. He gives them hope by telling them the truth of the future, that better days will come. You know, I, um, Deb Hagood talked, when she talked about the rapture, one of the things that she said was, can you imagine what that day is going to be like? How incredible it is. I think she had seen a PBS special on the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II and the Majesty and whatever, and she said, oh my gosh, that does not even compare with when Christ comes for us in the rapture of the church. Well, let me tell you what he's talking about here, the day uh, that he returns with the church and we get to experience the victory of the battle of Armageddon with him. We get to experience reflection his glory, which is a little bit of what he talks about here um, in verse 10, it is going to be um, amazing. Paul wants the Thessalonians' knowledge of the end times, the truth about the end times, to spur them on to perseverance in the faith. Because of that, he gives them four truths in these verses about the future that are designed to help them persevere. And the first thing he assures them of, the first truth he tells them in verse 5, is that their suffering is not without purpose in the future to come. You know, we all have a tendency, we're interesting creatures. We have a tendency to believe when we're suffering that that means that God does not care. If we're suffering, it must mean that God has, you know, closed the door and turned his back on us. When actually, that cannot be farther from the truth, ladies. The opposite is actually true. God cares so much about us and our suffering that he never wants to waste any of our suffering. He wants it to be purposeful. And in the case of the Thessalonians, Paul tells them that God is using their suffering to expose their faith and to expose what grace has accomplished in their life. Paul wants to validate the truth for the Thessalonians that their suffering is purposeful. And in fact, it provides the evidence that proves without a doubt that they are worthy of the future that God has for them when Christ returns. Now, I do want to say that it is grace through faith that gets us into heaven. It is not suffering um, that actually allows us to be with Christ. It is um, God's grace that through our faith allows us to get into heaven. But it is suffering that clearly displays in our life what God has accomplished in us through his grace and his mercy. It's similar to um, if you take a gold ore and you refine it with a hot fire, and I know you've all heard this example, but if you do that, it separates the pure and perfect gold from the dross that is involved in the ore. And the same thing happens with us. Suffering not only refines our Christian character, and takes out of us those things that uh, we don't need to have in our life and our character. It separates us from those who simply call themselves Christian, but have never truly had a faith in our Savior. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Paul wanted them to know that their suffering was purposeful, that it was going to expose their faith and, uh, without a doubt, prove what grace had done in their life and allow them um, to be worthy of that day, of being with Christ on the day that he uh, returns. The next future truth that Paul shares with them is in verses 6 through 9 that we just looked at. And he assures them there 
that those that have caused them to suffer are not going to go free. There is retribution in the future times. Paul wants them to know the truth about God, that God is just. Even in our suffering, when we feel like there is no justice, we can know that we have a perfectly just God. And Paul knows the truth about future judgments of God, that um, this is not scare tactics. The future judgments of God are real, and they are going to happen. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, for the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. God is perfectly just. That's a truth that he wants the Thessalonians to hang on to in their persecutions. And he wants them to hang on to the fact that God's judgments are real. You know, verse 9, and I think I put this on your homework sheet, but verse 9 is probably Paul's most explicit reference in all of his writings to the fate of the unbelievers. And it is very explicit. It says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the power of his majesty. When I read that, I thought, you know, that's the ultimate example of another one, spiritual example of another one of my favorite sayings, which is what goes around comes around. And this is kind of the ultimate spiritual example of that because those who reject Christ will in the future be rejected by God. What goes around comes around. Reject Christ now, and in the future you will be rejected by God. Paul wants his friends, his fellow Thessalonians, the people that he loves so dearly, to be encouraged by knowing that their tormentors who reject the Savior will be shut out for all eternity from his kingdom. For Paul, future retribution is a fact that he wants the Thessalonians to take comfort in. Now, Paul shares his third truth about the future in verse 7 when he tells the Thessalonians that just as surely as they can count on the fact that justice is going to be meted out to their persecutors when Christ returns to the earth, they can also count on the fact that they and the apostles and everyone else who's experienced persecution from their, for their faith is going to experience relief or rest at the revelation of Christ when he comes on that day at the end of the tribulation. They can look forward to the fact that when Christ comes, he is going to hold all the power that it seems like their persecutors hold down. Christ is going to have all the power in that day. And the word here that's used um, in the text for relief when it says um, uh, you will have relief I think it's in verse 6. Some of you, it says, and give relief to you who are troubled. Some of your Bibles may say, say rest. But in the original language, I thought this was interesting, that word relief means um, releasing a bowstring from a bow. I don't know whether any of you have ever taken archery. I did in college. But one of the things you had to learn to do in the first class was to bend that bow down and to uh, make that bowstring um, hook on there which you can tell I didn't make an A in archery. But um, anyway, you had to hook that bowstring on there. And then at the end of the class, you released it. And all of the tension was gone. And it just would fall limp in the locker on the floor. Um, When Christ returns, there is going to be no more tension 
in the lives of believers because there's going to be no more persecution for their faith because they will reign with Christ. Never again will they experience what they've been experiencing now. They will have rest. We will have rest from relief and relief from any persecution in our life. And I believe that that's uh, one of the reasons why the Apostle John says this at the end of the book of Revelations. Uh, One of the very last verses is Revelation 2.20. And John, who has had a long life, many days of being persecuted in his life, says this, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He is looking forward to the relief that's going to be experienced in that day. The final truth that Paul shares with us is that not only will um, those that have been persecuted be given rest and relief from their sufferings, but the Thessalonians and anyone else that has been persecuted will reap rewards due them for their perseverance. Verse 10 gives some amazing promises. Let me read that back to you again. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those uh, who have believed. This includes you because you have believed. Um, This is a great promise. What it really says is when Christ comes back in power to be vindicated on that day, His church is coming with him. And we are going to be a part of that. And certainly anyone that has endured persecution is going to be right up front, definitely with him. They are going to be on the front row uh, witnessing his glory and reflecting his glory back. And that's going to be their ultimate reward for the Thessalonians, to be with Christ when he returns and to reflect his glory on that day. What a reward that's going to be. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 on your verse sheet says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted um, the prophets who were before you. And 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we also reign with him. The Thessalonians, Paul wants them to persevere because they are going to know that one day their reward will be reigning with the living Christ. Now, as Paul has talked about the future with the Thessalonians, he's used these four truths about future times to encourage them in their suffering. And what he's trying to do is to give them on a day-to-day basis, an eternal perspective. And, you know, that's hard to do. We all kind of walk through life with our head down. And he wants them to put their head up and look at all eternity and not just look at what's happening in their lives today. And, you know, the same thing is true as we walk along beside those who suffer or those who struggle in their faith today. You know, the truth is I always want to make the pain stop for someone that's really suffering or I always want to jump in front of them as they're stepping off the path and say, Stop! Don't do it! Don't go there! Um, But, you know, most of the time I can't do that. I can't make their pain stop and I can't drag them back Um, on the right track. But what we can do, what we need to do for these people is to offer them hope for the future that is real. 
what Paul says here to the Thessalonians is real about their future. And it's real about our future too. And any other believer that is struggling to persevere, it's not a platitude or a pat Christian answer that, oh, there's a day coming when life is going to be better. It is the truth, ladies. Without a doubt, there is a day coming when perseverance will be borne out with rewards. There is a day coming when tormentors are going to be punished. There's a day coming when those that have been persecuted will be given relief. And there is a day coming when we will stand in the blazing presence reflecting the glory of Christ. It is the truth in our lives and in anyone that is struggling in their faith. Paul's truth about the future for the Thessalonians did not stop their persecutions. It did not stop the suffering the Thessalonians were enduring. But it did give them the encouragement to fix their eyes, not on what they can see today, but on what they know for an absolute fact lies in their future. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We need to give those that we walk along beside an eternal perspective. Let's finish our last two verses real quickly here. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling, that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul's final two verses here may be his most significant application that we have on how to encourage others to persevere because it's right here where he prays for their success. You know, Paul consistently calls on the power of God to work in the lives of those who know God. He doesn't leave it up to the strength of the Thessalonians to simply endure their persecutions because he knows that in their own strength, they're more than likely not going to make it to the finish line. But with God's power, which he asks for on their behalf here, Every good motive prompted by their faith can be achieved, not for the good of the Thessalonians, not for the good of Paul, but for the glory of God. So as we walk along beside those who suffer for their faith or simply struggle in their faith, it's going to be our prayers. It is going to be our prayers for God to use his power for his glory that's going to make a difference in their lives. James 5.16 on your verse sheet says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And Philippians 2.13, and I love this, For it is God that works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Our prayers are going to be what makes a difference in the lives of those who are struggling to persevere. Just like, our, just like Paul, it's going to be our job to encourage those around us that are struggling to persevere 
We must point them to the source of their blessings. I believe we must offer thanksgiving for their faith because it keeps everything in perspective. I believe that we must give them hope for the future and an internal perspective. And I also believe that we should pray faithfully for God to use his power for his glory for their success. Let me close this in prayer. Father, you are... um, You are a gracious God, and you are also a powerful God. And, Father, I thank you for the words of truth. I thank you for Paul, who encouraged the Thessalonians. And today we sit here hundreds, thousands of years later, encouraged by his words. Father, I pray that um, these words would take root in our heart, that we would be encouraged to persevere by Paul's words. And I pray that we would be women that are willing to walk along beside others, and to encourage them along that same path. Thank you for these ladies. Bless them. Keep your hand of favor on them this week. And uh, we just offer these prayers for your glory. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.